Coming up on Stu Does America, we've got a very special show for you tonight. A full hour with author Matt Ridley. He's here to talk about his upcoming book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. If you're watching free tonight on YouTube, Facebook, or listening for free on podcasts, thank you for tuning in. And be sure to leave a nice rating and review. Five stars, the only acceptable answer there. Or if you want to be really a part of the Blaze family, consider a subscription to Blaze TV. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And I get to knock 30 bucks off your price. That deal does end this week, so move quickly. On the other side of my awesome show open, a full hour with the brilliant mind of author Matt Ridden. Stu does America. If you're someone who likes to read and try to deepen your perspective and understanding of the world, in other words, if you're a nerd, you probably have a list of books that you consider foundational to that process. One book that I put into this category for myself is The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. As someone with conservative and libertarian, libertarian leanings myself, I, of course, have argued the positive effects of capitalism and free markets and free trade. But too often, I think we would get caught up in whatever the issue of the day is without actively recognizing how much miraculous good has already been done. Sure, it's worth fighting for a few points on a tax rate, but uh, when billions are being brought out of extreme poverty, it's probably worth spending more time focusing on the bigger picture. Uh, The book doesn't just tell a rosy picture, however. It breaks really everything down to the building blocks level, going back literally thousands of years to explain how all of this came together and how, if we're not careful, we can totally still screw it up. Uh, I really do consider The Rational Optimist a precursor to other important works that have come since uh, by everyone from Steven Pinker and Hans Rosling to Jonah Goldberg and Arthur Brooks. Uh, His new book is also fantastic, and we're going to get to it today. It's called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom, and it comes out May 19th. Uh, You can pre-order it now, of course. Joining me from the UK, Matt Ridley. Thanks for coming on. Stu, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. Mm, It's going to be, you know, I'm really fascinated to to hear your take on everything that's going on right now. And I will say, uh, when I look back at this era of coronavirus, uh, you have a, a, a moment that stands out in, in my, uh, my understanding of how this happened in that uh, as this sort of started happening, I, I, I developed a contextual fear, which was I, I, I'm, I'm typically skeptical on these things that they're going to blow up uh, into these huge issues. And uh, but I noticed things that China was acting very strangely. But that's China, you know. Then it goes to Italy, and Italy's closing down its entire society. Here we have a big festival, South by Southwest, that decided on its own to just close down and cancel itself. Hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. And that freaked me out. But it wasn't until, I believe it was May 10th, that I read an article from Matt Ridley uh, entitled, Coronavirus is the Wolf on the Loose, that this time the warnings are not overdone, that I really started to freak out. Because when I saw that you were writing about this, I was excited to because I hope to come to you for a rationally optimistic perspective. And you you started with uh, more pessimism than I expected, and it really freaked me out. You you were clearly right on that, uh, as we've seen much higher than the worst uh, estimates as far as death toll goes. How do, why did you believe that this one was going to stand out from all of the other threats we've had? Right. Just to be clear, I think it was March 10th. You said oh, May I'm 10th sorry. I'm that sorry. I wrote that. Yes. Uh, yeah, but Pardon so, uh, wouldn't be uh, much. Think, it would I be a very strange say... perspective on <laughs> May 10th to take a big stance. March 10th. You are correct. Thank you. 
Right. Anyway, but uh, yeah, I, th- my argument there was that we've been crying wolf uh, about pandemics and indeed other crises for years. And so it's not surprising if we ignore uh, the cry of wolf, um, because if you think about swine flu, bird flu, mad cow disease, Zika, Ebola, um, there's been uh, alarm after lo- alarm about infectious disease. There's also been endless warnings that climate change is going to bring civilization to an end or mm-hmm. cause uh, terrible storms or droughts or sh- uh, destroy people's uh, ability to feed themselves. Uh, and all of these have been grotesquely exaggerated. Um, the World Health Organization itself said in 2015, the greatest threat to uh, health of people on the planet is climate change. In other words, they weren't looking in the right direction mm. for pandemic diseases either. And then along comes this one. And as you say, what happened in China kind of spooked a lot of us out because, you know, closing down a whole city, you know, is that really possible? Yeah. Well, here we are in a position of closing down whole countries now. Um, And I think what's different about this one is how incredibly contagious it was. Um, It is. Uh, It's very easy to catch it. And one of the reasons for that is people pass it on when they're asymptomatic. Now, normally things that are that easy to catch are not very harmful. They normally, we call them the common cold and they you know, everybody gets them and everybody recovers. Um, But it turned out this one is capable of killing people, although it's mainly capable of killing very old people or very uh, unwell people, Mm -hmm. uh, which is no comfort to them. But it does at least mean that it's not killing children, which flu would do if it became very uh, lethal. Uh, So um, uh, while this is a terrible uh, pandemic, it's not quite as bad uh, as as some of the things that might happen. And it's therefore going to enable us to get our house in order and deal with these threats in the future. We will get through this. We will get to the to the other side of it and have uh, a better life. And against, uh, you know, this is a terrible episode. But the general improvement in human living standards over the last 10 years is far greater than anything this can do to it. Mm. Yeah, And it's interesting. Um, and obviously, your book is coming out here, How Innovation Works. I don't believe you planned on releasing it in the middle of a global pandemic. Probably not the way that works out. But it, I think oftentimes this stuff reveals things uh, that we learn because innovation clearly is our way out of this and going forward needs to occur to make sure the next one doesn't happen as well. You go into uh, one of the one of the uh, topics that you talk about in how innovation works uh, are vaccines um, and how they developed. And uh, you write something uh, and, and observe something that you come back to often in the book. Uh, you write in, in how innovation works. Vaccination exemplifies a common feature of innovation that use precedes understanding. And I think that is totally the reverse of the way people understand how these things come to be. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because uh, uh, at the moment, we kind of assume that you have to start with science uh, and then you gradually... um, uh, implement it, and the result is that you eventually end up with with technology that is applied. Whereas in the case of vaccines, it's quite clearly the opposite. Back in the 18th century, you have people coming back from the Ottoman Empire, from Constantinople, um, Lady Mary Pierpoint in the case of the UK, uh, other people in the case of the US, saying, hang on, they've got a habit over there of actually deliberately giving smallpox to kids 
from somebody who's recovered a very small dose, uh, and that makes them incapable of catching the disease and dying from it later in in life. And um, she was, Lady Mary was a proselytizer for this really dangerous and weird habit, then she was criticized heavily for it. And the guy who tried to invent, invent uh, introduce it in, in Boston had to end up in hiding because the mob was trying to kill him for this dangerous idea. Um, and it's not until 200 years later, beginning with people like Pasteur, that we begin to understand how it works. And we still only half understand how it works. We understand that it stimulates the immune system into producing antibodies. Um, but innovation, sorry, vaccination is something that uh, we've been inventing for two or three hundred years it saved millions of lives probably billions of lives and we've and we've done that without necessarily understanding why or how uh, which i think is rather rather wonderful and it implies that we can change the world bef before we understand it quite often science follows uh technology so another example is uh, thermodynamics followed the steam engine uh, rather than the other way around yeah, and could you go into a lot of that in the book? And I think it's it's an interesting approach because it's not something that I would have intuitively thought of. Um, you, you go into this as well when it comes to flight, um, where you know, and this branches off into also you talk about the government and their involvement in this, which I think is a fascinating thing, particularly to this audience who looks at government skeptically. And I think uh, in a very uh, real way. Um, Let's go to the Wright brothers versus Langley. This is such a fascinating story because everybody knows the story of the Wright brothers. I think at least they think they do. You, you told it in a very interesting way. But when you put it on the other side, side by side with what Langley went through at the same time, it really paints an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. December 1903, two different groups try to get a powered airplane into the sky at the same time. Uh, one is run by this guy, Samuel Langley, who's head of the Smithsonian Institution. He's an astronomer. He's he's a grandee. Uh, he's a great uh, uh, respected scientist. Uh, and he goes off into a, a closed locked room and comes draws an idea for an airplane. And he doesn't talk to very many people. He keeps his project secret. He gets a huge grant from the government. Uh, very large in, in the context of the time. And he builds a machine from scratch without testing the elements of it. You know, he puts it all together uh, and he launches it from the top of a houseboat in the Potomac and it goes up into the air a little bit and then collapses about 20, 30 feet from the boat into the water and breaks up. Uh, and the pilot is okay. He's got a life jacket on which kind of implies that he knew that <laughs> this wasn't going to work. <laughs> and he swims to the shore. Um, and the government is so humiliated by this uh, failure, because there's a huge crowd watching, that they they never support uh, flight again. They, they regard it as a crank idea. Just 10 days later, on a barrier island off North Carolina, two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, uh, genuinely do get airborne with powered flight for the first time, famously, of course, the Wright brothers. Um, and nobody believes them takes them several years to uh, get taken seriously. Um, and it's not really till they go to France and fly around in circles for an hour on end uh, that people realize that, that, that they've done it. Now, what have the Wright brothers done right that, the, that Langley did wrong? They put together the elements gradually for this. They, they tested gliders. They tested how to steer a glider in the air. They tested the exact shape of the wing in, in wind tunnels to, to how to get the, the right lift. Um, they corresponded 
corresponded with lots of different people, people who had built gliders and other uh, devices to try and understand things. So they, they were, they're drawing on a network of expertise and they're putting things together gradually and collectively. And they leave the easiest bit to last, which is designing the engine to go on board. Um, they've, they've, by then, they've done several years of experiments. So they do trial and error. And that's what good innovators do, is they use a lot of trial and error. They don't try and invent the whole thing at once. They don't try and figure it out from first principles. They just do lots of experiments. Uh, so the Wright brothers are a very nice example of how to do innovation, and they stand in sharp contrast. And by the way, they then ask the U.S. government for some money to develop this, and they're told to get lost because <laughs> the U.S. government's been burned by uh, Samuel Langley and doesn't want to go near it. Yeah, <laughs> it's an amazing story. I mean, I, I mean it, it so plays into the the way government is, and you have a bunch of good examples. I would say the R100 and the R101 that you tell in the story as well is another great example I would encourage people to find. Um, you know, it's funny you say trial and error, and I've said, we've all said that phrase a million times, and it wasn't until I was listening uh, and reading uh, your book, which I did a little bit of both, um, it, it had, uh, the word, it, it never mentioned success I never, I never really internalized that before. Trial and error never says you win. It just says you yeah. lose. That's how <laughs> central failure is to that process, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and great innovators get that. I mean, Thomas Edison went on and on about this. He said, I haven't found, uh, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Um, <laughs> Jeff Bezos take, talks about this a lot. He talks about you've got to keep swinging and missing. Um, in order to get to the point where you swing and hit. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the important thing is to try it. Try something. Uh, and if it fails, fine. And if you look at the history of Amazon as a business, it's a string of pretty disastrous failures <laughs> until it's a huge success. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it bet on a lot of wrong businesses in the in the dot-com boom of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Most of them went bust. It tried to get into toy retailing and, and it didn't manage it. Uh, it. It did all sorts of ventures which didn't work, but it learned from the experience and it, it gradually uh, improved. And I asked Jeff Bezos once uh, about how he keeps a big company innovative. And he said, one of the secrets is to get ideas from the bottom of the business reaching the top of the business. And the way to do that is to make sure they don't get vetoed because a big business very soon becomes conservative and uh, rejects maverick ideas. And so he has a system whereby uh, if there's an idea presented to a, a layer of management, if uh, all but one people in the room say it's a bad idea, then they can't veto it. It has to go up and be heard by a high level of management. So he's hearing the minority view from within his organization. And I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about it. It is. In fact, we a lot of times we'll use uh, Amazon.com and Pets.com as the black and white success and failure story. But as you point out, Amazon actually invested in Pets.com and yes, watched that right. fail. Uh, so it's really amazing. Uh, let me, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, let me leave you with a couple of things on, uh, we were talking about flight from the book, How Innovation Works. Um, I love this from Engineering Magazine talking about uh, planes. Our skepticism is only uh, to, as to the utilitarian value of the present or possible achievement of the aeroplane. We do not believe it will ever be a commercial vehicle at all. Uh, that's from <laughs> Engineering Magazine. Um, and the, the, the long story about, uh, about innovation, Matt tells as well. In 1970, there were 3,218 fatalities per trillion revenue uh, passenger kilometers. In 2018, there were just 59, a 54-fold decline. That is an amazing story and a miraculous development. Uh, we'll be back with uh, more with Matt Ridley here in just a second.
Let me tell you a little about, about uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company. Now, this is a veteran-owned, unoperated, premium, small-batch, roast-to-order coffee company. And I'm pretty sure they use airplanes to deliver uh, some of the coffee. And that is, uh, that, you know, look, this is all working together. It's all in synergy here. Uh, they import only the highest quality beans from all around the world and roast their coffees to order so you get the freshest uh, varieties that you can possibly have. The best way to enjoy this is with the Black Rifle Coffee Club because, you know, look, if you're like me, you're going to forget. You're lazy. You're not going to order it every month. You're going to totally, you know, it's going to slip your mind. You don't have to deal with that now. You choose the amount and the blends that you want and Black Rifle Coffee discounts the price and they ship it directly to your home or office completely free. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash stew is the place to go. You order the, uh, you put the discount code stew in there and you receive 20% off your first order of any coffee products and make sure to put in the uh, offer code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus you're 20% off. You don't want to leave that on the table. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash stew. It's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash stew. We're back with Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works. I want to go to um, a theme that Matt brings up often in the book, and I'm torn as to whether to be excited about it or depressed by it. Uh, he writes, innovation in computers was and is not really a story of heroic inventors making sudden breakthroughs, but an incremental, inexorable, inevitable progression. Uh, the myth of the lonely inventor, the solitary genius, is hard to shake. The individual is strangely dispensable. Uh, Matt, don't take my hero story away from me. I, I want to believe that at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to come up with this idea that cures all the world's ills and make billions and billions of dollars and have fame and fortune. But you're saying that's not really how innovation works. No, I'm afraid it isn't. Um, again, when you look at the details of an innovation like the computer, you find it's a much more collective experience. It's, it's, it's lots of different people. It's impossible to say who the inventor of the computer is once you look at it in detail. There's lots of different people contributing lots of different ideas. And it's not just that, but as I say, there's something inevitable uh, about technology. So if you think about the search engine in the 1990s, once the internet was built, it was inevitable that people would develop search engines. You didn't need um, Google to be invented before you could have search engines. And it's the same in the 1870s with the light bulb. 21 different people came up with the idea of the light bulb independently. There was Edison in America, obviously, but the Swan in England and Lodigan in Russia and a whole bunch of other people. And they all got very cross with each other and said, hang on, that's my idea. But all that was telling you really was that the idea was ripe the technologies that you needed to combine to make a light bulb, electricity, glass, vacuums, uh, that kind of thing, uh, were, were, were had all reached the stage where it was sort of inevitable that people would put that together. And therefore, if Thomas Edison gets run over by a tram, we still get light bulbs. But the weird thing about that is that Nobody predicts the light bulb coming, and nobody really predicts the search engine coming in the 1990s, curiously. When you look forwards, you don't see the inevitability of these things. Um, now, that's not to detract from the talent of some of these people. Uh, you know, Thomas Edison, in particular, is, is a fantastic innovator, partly because he understands the importance of trial and error. He tried 5,000 different types of plant mm. before he settled on Japanese bamboo to be the filament of his first light bulb. Uh, so he knew the importance of just trying and trying and trying till you got it right. Um, uh, but and, and also, here's an interesting thought. Shakespeare didn't have to worry about somebody else writing his plays, whereas Thomas Edison did have to worry about somebody else inventing his light bulb. So in a way, it's even more clever, the person who gets there first when it's a competition. Yeah, yeah you kind of mentioned this. And in a way, it's a compliment. 
Um, it was really fascinating to read how often, though, number one, we can't even trace back to who actually thought of these ideas. And number two, how often different people around the world, sometimes close to each other with no knowledge of each other, were able to kind of come across these same ideas at almost the exact same time. Uh, you know, it, it is you mentioned that it's right because those things are available. But is there it almost feels like there's something more to it where I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of cosmic ways to, I guess, to to explain it. But is there is there a, a is there a foundational sort of like solid way to understand why these things all happen at the same time from people who aren't talking to each other in most cases? Well, it, occasionally you find that it's 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 not coincidence. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's they're snooping on each other. <laughs> so Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray applied for a patent on the telephone on the very same afternoon. You know, they both visited the same patent office, and you think that's an amazing coincidence. When you look into it, you find that they were well aware of each other, <laughs> and they were fran frantically racing to get ready in time to be the guy who who files the patent. But no, uh, I mean it, it is spooky sometimes. But there's nothing uh, supernatural about it. It's just the fact that technology usually consists of combining existing technologies in, in new and interesting ways. And um, uh, it just so happens that at certain points it becomes obvious and inevitable that you will combine certain technologies and produce uh, uh, interesting outcomes uh, and other people do it. And it occurs to pretty well every technology that there are rivals. Um, and of course, it's not just people arriving at the same idea at the same time. It's also uh, people building on the ideas of their predecessors and then having their successors build upon their ideas. So I give the example in the book of uh, Norman Borlaug, the uh, guy from Minnesota who went to Mexico and developed uh, dwarf uh, wheat varieties that he then persuaded India and Pakistan to take up, which had an incredible impact on world hunger, basically abolished famine. Uh, and, you, and he got the Nobel Peace Prize and quite rightly, he was a you know a truly significant figure but actually when you look at it where did he get the idea of dwarf wheat varieties he got it from a guy called burton bales who he met at a conference in buenos aires who told him that he'd heard of a guy in orville called orville vogel in oregon who was growing these dwarf wheats that would yield much more uh, for the same inputs and orville vogel had got it from a guy called cecil salmon who went to japan on general MacArthur's staff and he came across this agricultural research station in Japan where they were growing these dwarf wheat varieties and these had been developed and crossed and hybridized by a guy called Gonjiro Inazuka who uh, in the 1910s and 1920s and where did he get it? We don't know, but you know he he won't be the end of the chain. Right. Um, you know it. it so so uh, singling out one person and giving them the Nobel Prize or a patent is sometimes a mistake because it leads to fearful rows, of course. Mm. With in radio, we say, uh, if you, yeah, in radio, we say, if you've stolen from us, you've stolen twice, uh, which is uh, something I think goes down this word. Um, when it comes to, I, I, as, as I'm reading the book, I, I come to the thought of, you call it how innovation works. It really could be also how civilization works. I mean, you're telling the background story of almost everything uh, that we consider important in our civilization, from computers to toilets to dogs to, I mean, it's all, you have everything there. Um, and one of the things I, th I kept coming back to is that uh, innovation in many ways is, effi is efficiency. Finding these ways to re, you know, move around the things that we do know, combine them in a way 
and then continue to make them more and more efficient over time, which not because it's not just the idea, as you point out in the book, it really is the application to make it something that we can actually use. Yeah. Well, I think this is really gets to the distinction between invention and innovation, because inventing a prototype is sometimes the easy bit. Not always, of course, but it, uh, the, the hard work is turning that prototype into something that can be uh, affordable, reliable, uh, available to everybody. Um, and that's the great trick, uh, as it were. That, and Edison famously said it's it's 99 percent perspiration and one percent inspiration. And I think that's that's uh, uh, sort of what he was getting at. Um, uh, and if you think about Moore's law, which is the decline in the cost of computing, basically, or rather the, de the decline in the size of transistors and therefore the, the, the number you can make on a silicon chip for a given value quantity of money, it's fantastically regular. It's extraordinarily incremental. It, despite discovering it, uh, we don't uh, cheat it. We can't jump ahead and get to, to the outcome. We have to go from one chip to the next uh, in Moore's law. But of course, the beauty of Moore's law is that the smaller you make a transistor that, uh, on a silicon chip, um, the cheaper uh, it becomes and the more reliable. And that's what has mm. been so spectacular for us in the last 50 years, is that we found a technology that when you miniaturize it, it becomes more efficient uh, and more reliable and cheaper. And that has driven a huge amount of change uh, in our society today. By the way, um, I, I speculate in that book that the number of transistors on the planet is now vast. I mean, by this, we mean the tiny little molecular switches that you put on a silicon chip. Uh, there are, you know, billions on a chip now. And as a result, there are, we're getting to the point where soon there will be more transistors than there are grains of sand on the planet. And they're both made from silicon. One's made from silicon metal, one's made from oxidized silicon, silicon dioxide. Um, uh, but uh, that's a really weird thought because, of course, the transistor is non-random, whereas the shape of a grain of sand has an element of randomness in it. Mm. It's, uh, it's fascinating how, how that can happen. And uh, in, 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 in it's somewhat, you say at one point, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about how it's, 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 uh, innovation is very predictable in retrospect, but completely unpredictable in prospect. And it, it really, you get that sense over and over again. All these inventions seem so blatantly obvious to us now, but being able to cross that line is obviously a, a big part of this. Um, I want to give you um, one other thing, one of the more entertaining parts of the book, as you mentioned, uh, trial and error throughout. And the errors are just fun to go over and review. I, I've got a quote from, about Motor, from Motorola about how they, they saw cell phones. But that is, that's an important thing in, in that I, you realize that a lot of the companies that wound up crossing these lines and having the innovations, Google, you mentioned, uh, Google wasn't out really to do a search engine. They just realized it over time. So many of the, the, even the people we see as successes in these fields had it completely wrong for an extended period of time. Is it, is it, is it, a, is it a supernatural ability of somebody to recognize, wow, we're going down the wrong road? Is that the key to being the one who comes out the other side? I think the key word here is serendipity. Uh, serendipity means sort of unexpected uh, luck, mm -hmm. and uh, if it, that, that's a big part, and and it's surprising how often the solution to a technical problem comes from left field. 
I don't play baseball, so I don't really know where left field is, but <laughs> I gather it's not where you expect something to come from. Right, kind um, of, yeah. And, <laughs> it's a strange phrase now that I think about it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, uh, so, for example, Stephanie Qualick is the person who invented uh, Kevlar. Uh, you know, uh, bulletproof vests and so on. Uh, and she did that at DuPont. Uh, she was looking for something completely different and she developed this material and it was a total failure at what she wanted it to do. But then she suddenly realized that it could be extremely strong if woven into a, a, a fabric. Uh, similar story for the post-it note at 3M. Um, they, they came up with, they were looking for a, for a good permanent glue that would work on paper. Uh, and they came up with a glue that didn't work at all because it it was totally temporary, you know, that you could take the piece of paper straight off again. And then Art Fry was going to his uh, Bible, uh, I mean, his uh, choir practice, and he suddenly thought, you know what, I could mark the places in my hymn book with this, with paper, with this glue on the back, because uh, uh, it won't hurt the hymn book. And the post-it note was born, you know. Mm. So um, it, it's the, these are very nice examples of how um, you have to be open to the possibility that you will that the 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 solution to your problem will surprise you. It'll come from an unexpected direction, um, uh, and so your failure to uh, solve one problem may turn into an opportunity to serve another one. To, to solve another one. And in fact, there's a modern website called Innocentive where companies and organizations can post problems and uh, people can try and solve them for them in, a, in exchange for a reward. Uh, and it's surprising how often it's people from way outside the field who solve the problem. Mm. Uh, fascinating. I, I will say um, I had these cards printed up with some quotes from the book that I pulled out uh, and I asked them to put my notes, which were on Post-it notes, uh, and attach them to <laughs> to the quotes, and they actually use tape on top of the post-it note. I don't know if you can see that to attach them, which is totally you don't need a post-it note if you're going to use tape. I just remind my producers about that. Um, let me leave you with this quote from uh, from um, uh, from the book. It's how innovation works. Uh, with uh, with Matt Ridley he, uh, about Motorola, he writes, Marty Cooper, who has as good a claim as anybody who, to have invented the mobile phone or cell phone, said, while director of research at Motorola in 1981, cellular phones will absolutely not replace local wire systems. Even if you project it beyond our lifetimes, it won't be cheap enough. Things change very fast. Back with more with Matt Ridley here in a second. We're back with Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works. Um, I found that quote, by the way. Here it is. Uh, Technology is absurdly predictable in retrospect, wholly unpredictable in prospect. I wish it worked the other way around. I wish it was nice and easy. Um, I want to uh, get into another theme that I found fascinating in the book, and it's one I never would have thought was true. We all love innovation. We all love things moving forward. Actually, as you point out in the book, we all don't love innovation. Apparently, innovation very often is not popular. Um, and that is a concept, I think, at least a modern society is, is very strange. But it, it not only happens uh, throughout history, but is still happening today. Yes, indeed. And uh, uh, in some ways, it's getting worse today because the the opponents of new technology are extremely organized. And, you know, a a technology like genetically modified food has been rejected by an entire continent in the case of Europe. Um, uh, And 
but it, but the, uh, there's nothing new about this. I mean, I describe in the book the opposition to coffee. Coffee was an innovation in the 1500s and the 1600s coming from uh, Arabia. And even in, in the Arab world, it was banned many times. Uh, then it was banned in France many times. And in, uh, in Britain in the 1670s, King Charles II banned coffee houses for two reasons. One, because he's being lobbied by the brewery industry. This is often a common story that vested interests don't like innovation. Uh, but the other reason is because he doesn't like fake news. You know, he actually says that people tell lies in coffee houses. What he means by this is that people mm. gather in coffee houses and, and gossip. And so one of the things they gossip about is whether the king is doing a good job or not. <laughs> um, and he doesn't like that. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, it's extraordinary how, uh, you know, margarine was bitterly opposed by the dairy industry and banned in many American states for, for decades. Um, the, 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 the umbrella was uh, described as dangerous by the handsome cab industry because they didn't want people walking down the street. They wanted people getting in a cab when it rained. Um, this is in 18th century London. Mm. Um, so uh, there are uh, th there are organized opposition either from existing incumbent businesses that don't want to be threatened uh, or from people who just don't like novelty. And it's very easy to appeal to people about potential dangers of the unknown uh, with new stuff. Uh, and we see that a lot. I mean, we see that with nuclear power. We see that with genetic engineering. We see it with uh, uh, digital technologies as well. Um, now, on the whole, when it's something like a mobile phone, doesn't matter how many people say it might be dangerous, it might fry your brain, we're going to go ahead and use it anyway because it's useful. Um, <laughs> but if it's not useful, uh, then we can indeed reject it. And that's what you're seeing with genetically modified food is that people say, well, I don't see the benefit. I'm, I've got plenty of food. I don't need it. Um, well, maybe you would if you were living in a, in a country that was struggling to feed itself. Yeah, no, and you actually cite several examples of that. Let me give you one. This this was shocking to me to read. Uh, William and Paul Paddock, uh, one an agronomist, one of the one Foreign Service official, wrote a bestseller called Famine 1975, arguing for abandoning those countries uh, like India that were quote so hopelessly headed uh, for the uh, the or, or in the grip of famine, whether because of overpopulation, agricultural insufficiency, or political ineptness, that our aid will be a waste. These can't be saved nations will be ignored and left to their fate. Uh, th you have a bunch of quotes from environmentalists, as particularly that day, but throughout, talking about how, look, you know, these you know, developing nations, we can't, we can't go that direction. We can't be feeding them because if we feed them, um, that's gonna create more problems for the rest of the world. We should just let them go. I mean, if we had listened to that, Back then, we're talking about maybe billions of people who would have had their lives ended much earlier than they should have. I don't understand how these arguments still can uh, get a foothold today. Yeah, it it, uh, it it makes me angry, actually, when I look at some of the stuff that's been said over, over the years by often people in the environmental movement. Uh, the environmental movement has a strong streak, streak of misanthropy in this and of nostalgia, saying that the world was a better place. Well, it wasn't, actually. <laughs> Child mortality was lethally high for people. Uh, hunger, malnutrition, uh, disease, all these things. We do a wonderful job of, of combating them. Just to give you a very nice example of a, an innovation that is low-tech uh, but has saved millions of lives very recently. Uh, it's the insecticide-treated bed net. 
Now, if you're an environmentalist, you say this is a bad thing. We hate insecticides. Mm -hmm. You know, we mustn't use them. But in the 1980s, a bunch of French and Vietnamese scientists working in uh, 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 Burkina Faso in Western Africa um, did a very neat experiment with they got people to sleep in huts for five months and they caught every mosquito coming in and out of the huts. And they worked out that if you put insecticide on the mosquito net, uh, you hugely deterred mosquitoes. And it didn't really matter if the mosquito net had holes torn in it, because that's what tends to happen to a mosquito net in the wear and tear of everyday life. Mm -hmm. um, and this experiment was so powerful that it took a while, but 20 years later, the Gates Foundation picked this technology up and said, this is the technology for defeating malaria. Um, and sure enough, uh, malaria mortality, which had been going up until 2003, has now halved since then. And the about 70% of the, the lives saved have been saved by this simple technology, um, much more than malaria uh, medication or insecticides themselves sprayed in the environment. So it's a very nice example of a low-tech innovation that can save lives on a massive scale uh, and, uh, you know, uh, doesn't take, uh, you know, if, if we said, no, no, we can't, it's no good. Malaria is going to get worse. Climate change is going to make malaria worse. We can't do anything about it. Let's not do any innovation. Let's let's just leave Africans to their fate, which was quite often what people were saying 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, they weren't necessarily saying it out loud, but they were saying it under their breath. Then I think we'd be making a huge mistake. Likewise, today, we are suffering from failure to do enough innovation. We haven't done enough to speed up vaccine development. We haven't done enough to speed up antiviral development. Um, there are lots of ways in which uh, we should have been better prepared for this pandemic if we had allowed innovation to proceed. It takes a long time to get licensed for a new medical device. That has deterred people from building point of care, um, quick diagnostic tests for things like coronavirus. Mm -hmm. uh, and you actually make the point, too, uh, you know, government is often the reason for this with regulations and such. The nuclear power industry, as we're talking about climate change, is a is a great example of it. And that we have not been able to innovate in, in that in that realm really at all um, um, for multiple reasons. But that being a big one. Um, and I would point you to as well, Matt's work, uh, not only in this book, but also in The Rational Optimist in particular on the environment and on climate change, really sensible uh, perspective on it and, and keeping it. Uh, keeping it out of the kind of fires of panic that we get from the media uh, and also many, many uh, environmentalists. Uh, Paul Ehrlich, always a fountain of these great quotes. There's many of them uh, featured in Matt's book. Let me give you one more here as we go to break. Ecologist Paul Ehrlich forecasts famines of unbelievable proportions by 1975. Another famous environmentalist, Garrett Hardin, said feeding India was like letting survivors of a shipwreck climb aboard an overloaded lifeboat. That's not the way to look at human life, I will say. Uh, we'll be back in one more second. As we talk about plentiful food all around the uh, world, uh, the problem with me right now is it's too plentiful, to be honest with you. This, uh, this uh, whew, staying inside, having too much time in uh, quarantine, been, uh, I've been passing the time with eating largely. Uh, so we need to, and, and largely is a good word there. Um, if you want to change that, if you're going through kind of the quarantine 19, like a lot of people are, uh, you want to change that around, a fast blast is a great uh, place for you to go. Um, the freshman 15 at least took a year. This quarantine 19 is taking much shorter time. Uh, you need to turn this around and turn it around with me as we're going through this together. Uh, one of the biggest problems of dieting, of course, is it takes too freaking long. 
uh, eating foods that you don't like all the time, well, you lose a pound or two a week. I, I can't stand doing that. Um, uh, if you want faster results, I like the fasting thing. The intermittent fasting thing I think is pretty cool. I'm an extremist, though, so this is what I do. Uh, Fast Blast, though, however, can do this for you in a sensible way. Fasting increases your metabolism, making it easier to lose weight and keep it off. While traditional diets can slow your metabolism, the Fast Blast smoothie makes it a lot easier and is uniquely formulated for intermittent fasting. They work really well to kind of tide you over, and the smoothies come in a convenient and easy-to-use squeezable pouch. No blender, no scales, no calorie or carb counting. Uh, and, you know, I'm impatient. Uh, if it takes, uh, you know, a month to lose a half an ounce, I'm not going to go for it. When I'm in, I'm in. The pounds come off fast with Fast Blast. Uh, give them a shot. Do your own homework and check it out and see if it's right for you. Fastblast.com slash blaze is the place to go. The slash blaze part, of course, is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Get started with Fast Blast today for a healthier, happier, and smaller you. Fastblast.com slash blaze. About three minutes left here with uh, Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, I pulled a few quotes to back me up here, um, but we're short on time, so I can't give them all to you. I'm just going to ask you straight out. This is my gotcha question. Uh, Are you anti-patent? Several times in the book, you mentioned that it hurts innovation and it's a bad thing. Is it something we need to get rid of, patents? Well, yes and no. I think it's very hard to get rid of them from here. You know, we, we, we'd have to do it gradually. But yes, I do agree that patents are more of a hindrance than a help. Again and again, the stories I told, even from the 19th century, inventors get tied up in pursuing the the, the people who violate their patents uh, to the exclusion of reason and all else. Mm. Uh, and uh Uh, The uh, empirical evidence actually from uh, today looking around countries is where countries strengthen their patent laws, they don't get more innovation. Uh, Where there there aren't patents, you get plenty of innovation with industries that don't have it. When when a patent expires, you tend to get more innovation. So 3D printing is a good example of a technology Mm. that is experiencing a wave of innovation at the moment and cost reductions because the patents have expired. Um, So I'm sorry, we have over played the intellectual property card in recent years. Copyrights too. I mean, you know, if this book sells millions of copies, my grandchildren are going to make money in 70 years time because, well, no longer than that, 70 years after my death Mm. is when the copyright will expire on my books. Um, uh, That seems too much to me. Let my grandchildren get a job. You know, why should they be making money off my work? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great point. I'm going to tell that to my kids, too, except they're not going to be inheriting anything. Um, before uh, one, more, one more thing before we go, I thought was an interesting uh, concept that I had not heard of before was Amara's Law. Can you explain it and, and, and what it means? Yeah. Well, this is a guy called Roy Amara in California in the 1960s who, who said that the thing about new technologies is that in the long run, they exceed our expectations. Uh, in the short run, they disappoint. That is to say, they have more impact in the long run than we expect, but they have less impact in the in the short run. Uh, and I think that's that's very true when you think about uh, something like the internet. You know, the first ten years, everyone's saying, "Oh, this is amazing." And you go, well, actually, it's not that great. You know, we can't do very much on it. <laughs> and then suddenly it takes off and it becomes spectacular. Um, so um, uh, it's a really important insight, I think. I, I call it the hype cycle as well, that, that you know, we, we hype things to start with and then we get very disappointed that they don't deliver. And then suddenly, about 15 years later, we say, whoa, they have delivered. So it's important to understand that the adoption of a new technology is not a linear phenomenon. It's a slow gathering thing and then it suddenly takes off, a bit like an epidemic. 
pandemic. This is kind of how I sell, sell my show to the network. I just said, look, it's gonna, you're going to get really excited at first and it's going to really disappoint you. But in the long run, like 20 years from now, you're going to be really excited that you <laughs> added it, I promise. <laughs> it's uh, How Innovation Works. Uh, Matt Ridley is the author. I encourage you uh, to go out and buy this book. Um, it comes out on May 19th. I'll get the month right. May 19th. Um, just a great read, and I would recommend anything from Matt Ridley. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for taking so much time with us and, and going through all of this. It really is a fascinating read. Stu, it's been a great pleasure, and it's wonderful how easy it is to do now from a distance. That's innovation. There we are. There we are. All right, we're back in a second. I hope you enjoyed us nerding out with Matt Ridley today. Conserva nerds unite. We're back tomorrow with another wonderful program.